Okay, take your Bible and let's stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. If you're a guest, we've been in this study that we've been studying this book for some time, and we're continuing to study it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 6 and go to verse 10. I have the what's called the Legacy Standard Bible version right here. So if you have an NASB, probably pretty close. ESV, a little closer. Um, King James, pretty close. Uh, otherwise, it might be a little bit different, some other versions, but we can all track pretty close with each other. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, it, it says, Therefore, being always of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we, have, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or present, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So then, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Let's pray over this text. Thank you for the text of Holy Scripture. Help us to drink from this today. Help us to gain from this. Let the Word of God be what drives us closer to the cross. May you be lifted up. May the distractions of life fade away in this moment. This is a holy moment. This is your text. Help us to accomplish the desired task, what the original recipients understood. Let us then make that giant leap of how to apply this where we're at today, 2,000 years later. Help during this for your glory and your honor. And God's people said, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So you kind of see what, the, what we're reading about today. And if you're a person who's taking notes or you like a title, this might be an unusual title, but the title of the message is Ambitious to Please God. Ambitious to Please God. Now you might hear the word ambitious and think, oh man, that sounds weird. I thought we weren't supposed to be ambitious. That, that, that kind of connotates something really negative. Well, it does, but also it can be Redemptive. And we'll look at that here in a little bit. The text in verse 9, if you look back down at verse 9, we're going to really walk around verse 9. It says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. What he's trying to get across in the text is ambitious to please God. The question we must ask ourselves is this Are we ambitious to please God? Is it the ambition? of our life to please God? It's an interesting question to ask. I really think it is. Now, what's interesting is Paul's really given us some great things, and now we get to this, this really almost kind of surprise at the bottom of the box. It's kind of like in the old days. Uh, I don't think we have this as much now, but you probably remember back in the 80s. The 80s were such a great decade, weren't they? Can I get amen? Man, the 80s were awesome. I'm sorry if you were born after it. Too bad for you. You got to ride your bike, go where you wanted to. Your parents didn't really, I mean, they, they just kind of thought everybody was okay in society in general. No one was worried. No one can track you down. There was no Life 360 to discover where you were at with your cell phone. You could just freely roam about. Free-range parenting was the norm. Not anymore, right? Here's the thing I remember about that day. It seemed like almost every box of cereal, you get to the very bottom and what was there inside that box of cereal. A prize, a toy, a goodie. You remember, you remember back in the day, you, it was kind of like, man, you just couldn't wait to get to the bottom of that, of that box. It was just, or you would see those, you know, those little hands. For those of you that had, you know, had children during those days, those little hands would just kind of like, just get to the bottom and just, you know, that was like the whole goal. Now what I've noticed is it doesn't seem like cereal, cereal boxes have a lot all of those kind of prizes and toys, and if they do, they're almost really lame, right? I just, I just want to be honest. I love Chick-fil-A, but they give the lamest toys. I'm just sorry. It, it's not even cool anymore. There was always this little prize at the bottom, this toy, this something that was exciting. Now, as we've been studying 
what Paul has been telling us. The last three weeks in the text, we've talked about not losing heart, not losing heart, different reasons for not losing heart, right? He, if you remember from the last three weeks, he talked about not losing heart because of the transforming work of Christ in our life. He talked in chapter 4, verse 7, about not losing heart because of the light of the gospel has been shed in our life. We have salvation and something called sanctification, being renewed in the spirit of our mind, being transformed into the, into the image of Christ. These things help us to not lose heart. Paul didn't lose heart. He knew that God was doing something. We learned, remember in the previous weeks in chapter 4, specifically verse 16 of chapter 4 through verse 18, the idea of the weight of glory on the inside, the renewal that God is doing, Your, our outsides may be decaying. Our outsides may not be getting any better, but inwardly there can be a transforming work. This is helping us to not lose heart. And then the ultimate thing, he gets to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, 5, remember? And he says, he says this idea of there is coming a day when we will put on the glorified body. We are looking for that day of being in glory and that we will be permanently clothed. No longer, the, the, no longer will the outside corrupt anymore. The inward transformation that's happened will now also happen outwardly. The curse of the fall is all gone. All those things he was saying through the last three messages, because of this, I don't lose heart. Now remember, if we've been reading, if you've been reading 2 Corinthians or you've been hearing any of this message, if you ever were, were to ever read chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, remember the idea that he had there was this like all the persecutions that many times have been close to death. And one wonders, why did he not just give up? Because he, ha- he, because he wouldn't lose heart. Why? Because he knew that the light, the glory, the gospel was in his life. He knew that God was using all these earthly, difficult circumstances to transform him and renew him and to have a spiritual renewal on the inside. He knew that all these things would help him to hunger for heaven more. He, all these things had helped him not to lose heart. It was like the last three messages for me was kind of like just eating a box of Fruity Pebbles, right? Isn't that the best cereal ever, Fruity Pebbles? Come on. Y'all know that's the best cereal. Try what you want. Although I will say this, they did make it better, didn't they? You remember a couple of years they did something completely revolutionary with Fruity Pebbles? They put marshmallows in it. How awesome is that, right? Whoever did that, that was genius. I hope that person is a Christian, and I hope to shake their hand in glory someday. They're probably already in glory. They probably already are. (laughs) If you want to see Jesus fast, eat the ones with the marshmallows, right? It'll get you there fast. Now, here's the deal. We've got to eat that whole box of cereal over the last few weeks about not losing heart. So good for our souls. But there's a prize at the bottom of the box, right? There's a prize at the bottom of the box. Paul's not done with us yet. There's, there's still more. There's, there's something that, that maybe not everybody realizes is at the bottom of the box. That's the thing about little kids back when they used to put the prize in the box. Sometimes you wouldn't, a little kid may not know there's a prize in the bottom of the box. Usually the parent would know it because they can read, right? But there's a prize here at the bottom of the box that Paul's been telling us over the last couple weeks of not losing heart. And it's contained, I believe, in verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. I think the prize at the bottom is Paul's giving us this insight, wrapping this together, this idea of not losing heart. And then he takes us to something that's connecting to all those previous thoughts about pleasing God, but more than just a cavalier pleasing God and ambition to please God. What does it look like to be ambitious to please God? Well, it kind of looks like this, all right? Let's say I were to, uh, by the way, that word ambition, if you were to look it up, it's a compound word in the Greek, right? Compound word, meaning two Greek words come together. Um, It's used for sure two places that I know offhand. There may be a third but it's a compound word, right? The first part of that word is the word philo, philo, which sounds like the word phileo, which is the word for what? Love. It's a Greek word for love. There's many Greek words for love, but it's that word for love, kind of brotherly love, right? We get the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So the word used for ambition in the Greek is a compound word of philo, which is love, and then the second part of it is Timotea, which is this idea of honor. So love and honor. That's the word 
the Greek word for this word ambition used here. Now, the interesting thing is, if you have a ESV or maybe a New Living Translation or a New International Version Translation, it won't use that word ambition. It'll use the word goal or aim. Do you see that in your text? The word goal or aim. Not a bad word for the translators to use for this Greek word right here, right? This compound Greek word that means love and honor. Not a bad word to use, aim or goal, but I believe ambition is actually a stronger word to use for the English language for this Greek word, right? Now, um, what's interesting is translators, you know, the, the Bible is written primarily in New Testament Greek, Old Testament Hebrew, right? And translators, this is why we always need new translations through the years, is that language changes, and you're picking the most appropriate words that go with what that original word meant. And so you'll see if you have like a Legacy Standard Bible or you have a New American Standard Bible uh, or King James, I believe, maybe New King James, will say this word, um, ambition, right? They'll say the word ambition. So we make it our ambition to please God. Now you might be thinking, Nick, you've already lost me. I don't know what you're talking about. I heard the word Greek, and I lost it, right? Now, let me tell you a Latin word, right? You're like, oh, man, Nick, deliver me, Jesus, right now. Now, there's, in the Latin, the word ambition is, a, is the, the word we get ambition is actually a Latin word, and it has this idea of to go around, right? To go around. Now, the translators pick that word ambition for that, that compound Greek word that has philo and time, together that mean love and honor, they pick that for a reason. Because that kind of Latin word that we get for ambition has the idea of going around to honor. But initially that word has this idea of going around to honor oneself. Kind of like a politician, right? Kind of like a politician. Are you all aware that politicians, this is how a politician works. It's kind of like this, right? I'm just going to grab this chair up front. Man, no one sat up front. Just kill them. Just kill them. Uh, everybody, oh, y'all did right over here. I'm sorry. Man, I'm sorry. I, I just, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't practicing proper ambition towards you guys, right? I, I, I'm, I'm going to help you out here. So it, it'd kind of be like this. Preacher's kids count, but they have to sit up front, right? They have to, okay? Let's say, well, I don't even have to do this. I can just like sit down right here and do it. Here. This is my buddy Quinn. Everybody say hi, Quinn. Quinn's like, man, I'm not sitting on the fourth row anymore, right? <laughs> Up to the first. <laughs> to the first. Yeah. So here's what it would look like. The word ambition, that Latin word that, that we use in English, if I was practicing this with, um, with Quinn, it'd kind of be like this. Man, nice to meet you, brother. Can I count on your vote next year? Like, I'd really, I'd, I'd really appreciate it. Have you heard of what I've done recently since I've been in office, the great things I've done does, it, does that sound familiar to anybody? Now, what am I doing right now? I'm being ambitious, right? And particularly, ambition is not just that honoring yourself, but it's more than just going one place. It's kind of looking around and going, oh, oh, okay. Uh, okay, oh, oh, I see this guy right here. Hey, nice to meet you, nice to meet you. I'm Nick, I'm running for office, and uh, listen... Brother, can I count on your vote for next year, John? Right. Absolutely. Hey, amen. Amen. <laughs> Let me tell you about all the stuff I've done. My opponent, terrible, right? They, they, they hate little babies and hate puppies, right? I can take you there all the way, my friend. So that's a form of ambition. It means that you, you're walking around, you're kind of looking like, ooh, how can, I, how can I bring honor to myself, right? That's ambition. However, so there's a negative ambition, but there's a positive ambition, and the text, he's talking about something positive. Are y'all all kind of like, Nick, do not come next to me, right? <laughs> like, I will act like I got to go to the bathroom right now, right? I am out of here. So it kind of looked like this. I just need another chair. Oh, I see one back here, right? I didn't see one here. Okay, it would be like this. This is David. Everybody say, hi, David. Hi, David. The ambition to please the Lord in the text, this idea of, Philo Timote, this idea of love and honor, this idea of going around is different in this text. It has this idea of, I'm going around to love and honor. So it'd be, it wouldn't be this idea like, like you saw as, hey, what's your name? 
it wouldn't be me saying, can I count on your vote? It would be, David, man, tell me about your life. Man, what's important to you? You know, tell me, tell me the best way you can be served. This word ambition right there has that idea of a love and honor where it's not really about you. It's about looking around, but it's not just I'm satisfied with David. It's that I pull over here and kind of, well, I'll catch Tom. Hey, what's your name, sir? Tom. Tom. Man, good to meet you. Good to meet you, Tom. Hey, tell me what's important about what you need in life. What's important? Yes. What's important is getting eternal life. Amen. Amen. He just taught a politician something, didn't he? <laughs> but you see the difference? The politician that goes around looking for a way just to bring honor to themselves, that's a, an ungodly ambition, a selfish, self-exalting ambition that's warned about in Philippians 2. And then there's this kind that's right here. It's this idea of love and honor that goes around. The, the, the reason they use it is because that Latin word that we get ambition from has the idea of going around to honor, but distinctly here it's this going around in love and honor. Now look back at the text. Look back at verse 9. So here's what he says. Verse 9. Therefore, we make it as our ambition, love and honor, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So Paul, everything that's happened in the previous weeks, all the don't lose heart, he gives us this wonderful surprise at the bottom of the box and this idea of what it looks like to please God. So when we ask ourselves this idea, how do I please God? How do I, like sometimes I don't, it doesn't seem like I'm pleasing God very much. It doesn't seem like he has a high priority in my life. Well, friend, God has called us to be ambitious about it. And the deal that I notice in our life a lot of times, we're not very ambitious about pleasing God because we're actually more than likely ambitious about pleasing who? Ourself. Now, what happens is this. When we are ambitious about pleasing God, we're ambitious about pleasing others. And when we're ambitious about pleasing others, it's really because we're ambitious about pleasing God. And when you boil down the simplest of God's commandments in Scripture, the Ten Commandments, the first half of it is all about loving who? God. The second half is about loving who? Those are interconnected to each other. So Paul's writing a letter to a Corinthian church. If you know anything about it, he's done them a lot of good. And what have they done a lot to him? Wrong. But he's still writing a letter. He's defending himself not because he really wants to. He's defending himself all throughout this letter for the glory of God and their good. He's ambitious to please God. It's not wrapped up in selfishness and self-seeking. So, an ambition to please God is this deal where everything is about the glory of God. And thus, everything will be about how can you serve others. And I know that sounds uncomplicated, but it sure is hard to do. And the way you'll notice it is just like the politician example. Do we see people as something to serve ourselves, or do we see people as an opportunity to be an instrument in the hand of the Redeemer? This is why marriages break up all the time, because people get to a point of they're doing the ambition that it's sinful and it's all about their own honor, instead of seeing, for instance, your marriage as an opportunity to love and honor and show forth the glory of God. That's the two different. And These are interconnected. The people that please God are walking around looking on ways to love and serve and to love and serve the Lord. Now, what's interesting in the text, he doesn't leave us just alone on how to accomplish that task. Look at verse 6. Therefore, that therefore is pointing to what we've already read, the reasons for not losing heart in the previous weeks. Verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. That doesn't mean you're absent in your relationship with the Lord. It means that when you're at home in the body, you are not physically with the Lord, right? You're not physically with Him. You are spiritually with Him. He is with you. The Holy Spirit is around you. But He's saying while we are, while, while we are in the body, 
We are absent from the Lord. Remember, in the previous text, he talked about the day of coming glory, that your body will be transformed. He told this also in 1 Corinthians 15. Now look what he says in verse 7. For we walk by what? And not by what? So he says, you're in the body. Although you're in the body, you're absent from the Lord, but you're really not absent from the Lord because you walk by faith and not by sight. So here's one of the keys to living this kind of life that is ambitious, uh, ambitious to please God. It's a life that walks by faith. It's a life that walks by faith. Really just have two points today. It's a life that walks by faith. Is our life, does our life look like one that walks by faith? And when I say that, I'm not talking about gullibility. I'm just, let me free you. People say all this all the time of, well, I don't, that word faith, I can't swallow Christianity because it's just about gullibility. Well, then my friend, you've missed the biblical definition of faith. That may be, that may be the world's definition of faith. That is not the Bible's definition of faith. When it comes to faith, there is always a substance of that faith. But a person will only be in this ambitious, be in this position of being ambitious to please God when their life is a walk of faith. Notice it says, if we what in faith? What does it say in verse, in verse 7? If we what? If we what by faith? Walk. Walk. That denotes that there's a daily in and out doing of something. As a result of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, God calls all his followers to every day take walks of faith. Every day to be pursuing him. If the culmination of our spirituality really happens within just a moment of being here together on a Sunday morning, we'll never have a walk of faith. And if we don't have a walk of faith, what will we do? We'll be ambitious to please ourselves. But if we'll take walks of faith every day, walks of faith, then what happens is we now come to a godly ambition, which is I'm looking around at how I can love, how I can love and bring honors to others, because now it's all about pleasing God. But part of getting there is not only what he's given us so far in the last chapter about not losing heart, all the things I've told you, but it's also this idea of faith has to be built. James says, show me your faith without your works, I will show you my faith, what? By my works. Faith works. Faith does things. Not to earn something from God, but because one has gotten something from God. And the interesting thing about faith, every day that there's a deposit of faith, whether it's in the scriptures, serving somebody, and having your motives internally looked at as you're doing it. I mean, have you ever done something for somebody, then the most of doing it, saying, am I doing this? For my honor, to please myself, or am I doing this for the love and honor of God to please him? Right? Two, different, two different ways to go about a day. These daily deposits of walking in faith help a person to kind of drill up this idea of being ambitious to please God. And just a side note, the more we please God, the more we actually receive joy. That's how we receive joy. You know, most people think joy is just finding ways to honor oneself, that's not how you get joy in life, right? You actually get joy in life by actually finding ways for the glory of God and, good, and the good of others that you're actually serving them. You're bringing love and honor to them. It's really not even about you. And in that, that is the most joyful place to be. It's actually the promise of God in the Scriptures. God promises in the Scriptures, if you put yourself up really high, what will God do? He'll bring you low, right? He'll humble you, right? Those who try to honor themselves. But if you, by the way, have you noticed? You guys are the sinners, right? You guys are the godly guys over here, right? But if you're humble, which means everything is about the glory of God, not yourself, then what can God do? Exalt you. By the way, just as a side note, people say sometimes, well, how do I know if I'm humble? You don't. <laughs> it's, like, it's like trying to catch a saber-toothed tiger, right? You, the moment you think you're humble... You're not humble. A humble person simply doesn't even know they're humble because all of life is about an ambition to please God. It's all about every day and every moment, every decision is about the glory of God and the good of others. And that person experiences this exaltation from Christ that sometimes they might not even be able to describe. 
Now, could others affirm it in your life and mention it? Sure. But you would probably be almost unaware of it. Now, it's interesting. Keep looking at verse 7. I want to tie verse, seven to, um, verse 8 to verse 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Right? Then he says this, and we are of good courage. Now, notice verse 6 and verse 8. He says, therefore, we are of good courage, knowing why we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So he says, I still have good courage, even though I'm in this body and I'm suffering, that I may be absent from the Lord, but I walk by faith, not by sight. I don't, I don't think anything bad that the Lord still kept me in this body right now. Like, for instance, if you're here or you're online watching and you're sick and God hasn't taken you to glory yet, all right, what does God want you to do in this moment? Have faith. Have faith that he's in control of your life. And if he's left you here, he's left you here in a reason, for a reason during this time. If you're taking care of a loved one who's sick and you're wondering, like, Lord, when are you going to take him? It's just so hard to watch their suffering. I know it is, friend. But you've got to have faith that God has a purpose and a reason for that. Until you take your last breath, there's a reason for it, right? So until that day, don't give in to selfish ambition, but give in to a godly ambition that says, all I want to do is love and honor God with every last breath I have. Now, you'll never get there if there's not a walk of faith. Now, look at verse 8. He says, thus we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Notice this. Does it seem like Paul prefers death than life? Doesn't it, right? And you know what? You're right. He does. But it doesn't mean that he's on some suicide mission and he just wants to snuff out his life. He just realizes that life is actually much better with the Lord. Like, and that's the ultimate destination. And because he is practicing proper faith, a biblical faith, walking in it, he's rehearsing from his salvation to his sanctification to future glorification, he realizes that life is ultimately a vapor. It's here today to bring glory and honor and pleasure to God, and then it's gone tomorrow so that I will enjoy him even more. So by faith, Paul could do everything could be about this ambition to please because he realized that life really is not about living for the dot, but living for the line. Life is not about living for the dot, but living for the line. See, the dot, if you take a big long line, a dot, let's say you took a Sharpie and drew a circle around the whole globe, right? All right, the whole globe. Life is just one dot with that black Sharpie marker, right? Eternity is a long line. Have you ever noticed that most of our life, we live for that one little dot, but not the long line of eternity? Now, here's the difference. When we're living for the long line of eternity, life becomes ambitious to please Him. Because our, we're able to look at life right. But if we're on this opposite spectrum of exalting ourselves, bringing pleasure to ourselves, just trying to bring our own honor, going around just trying to get it, well, well then life is, is really not... Really, we don't, we're not living for him anymore. We're just living for this dot. And the dot doesn't satisfy. I mean, ultimately, have, have any of y'all had good days in life? Y'all had good days, amen? Anybody have good days, right? Are you still, were you satisfied with that one good day? I mean, were you kind of like, oh, that's it. I don't need any more good days, Lord. You can just, every day can be Job's trials as far as I'm concerned. That one day got me there. Anybody like that? I didn't think so, right? Because we know every day is not going to bring the ultimate satisfaction. But if we are making deposits of faith, we will have good courage and that we will look forward towards glory and we will be able in the moment to not live for the dot of self-exaltation or our own honor, but live for the line of the pleasure of God. And in that, you actually find pleasure. You know, I was reminded this last week, um, we're doing um, renovation and so we're taking things off the walls, and um, this is something we had back in the ministry center room, and this actually is indicative of um, several years ago, we had a, a dear loved one, uh, Carrie Kudre, uh, that she went to be with the Lord, and three, um, three children uh, from one of the missionaries who support Srinivas, um, they, they perished in a house fire here in Collierville um, several years ago. It was, it was devastating. But I can remember there was something that came out of that that we kept saying to ourselves is this kind of brought a reality to us to where, and this is the only part that kind of comes off here, is that we had this phrase that said, live for the line and not for the dot. 
And we kind of put it in the middle of the cross, and we wrote some messages at our youth retreat that year. But I'm always reminded when I see this, just because we took it off the wall, it kind of, you know, something's on the wall, you don't really notice it, right? And until you kind of take it off and look around, and you're kind of like, oh, I remember this. It was a great reminder that if we are actually living for the line, we'll live for the cross. And this is why Paul in our text, right, he's saying, I make deposits of faith and to be absent from the body, like I'm not, I mean, um, to be absent from the body was present with the Lord, and I'm ready for it. This is a good thing. Ray Hansen, our missionary uh, to Mexico, he said this, you can't threaten me with death. <laughs> you ever heard that? You, just, you can't threaten me with death. Like, what are you going to do? Send me to be with Jesus? Okay, we're going to be okay with this. Now, so, the ambition to please the Lord and as a side note, that's how you actually receive pleasure in life. A walk of faith. What, what kind of deposits of living for the line and not the dot? Living, what kind of deposits of faith have we been making that actually help us to not live for the line, but the, live for the dot, but live for the line? What does our day look like? How do we start it? How even when we go to work tomorrow, do we see our work as something that just earns us money? Or do we see it as a display to put on the glory of God and to serve others? When, when someone comes into your workplace and your coworkers have problems, you ever have that before? They have problems, right? Do you see that as an opportunity to bring glory to God, to be used as his instrument in his hands? Or is it one more thing where you're thinking, I should have closed the door to my office? <laughs> it's the difference between living for the dot and living for the line. The difference is, is there an ambition to please self? Or is there an ambition to love and honor and serve the Lord and please Him. Now, not only that is the walk of faith in verse 7. He points that as a way to strengthen this idea of being ambitious um, to please the Lord. And notice in verse 9, whether at home or absent. So he says, even if, even if I'm um, here on earth or I'm here in heaven, I'm going to please the Lord. But not only that, but also because of verse 10. Verse 10, I'll just be honest with you. This does not give me the ooey-gooey feelings. Verse 10 brings a holy fear, and that's a good thing. Look in verse 10, he says this. Therefore, we must, what does he say? All appear. Now, contextually, I believe he's talking about what's called the judgment seat of Christ, not the judgment seat that's coming for those who are not in Christ. We'll talk about that later. Let's talk about the judgment seat of Christ for believers, right? He says this, so that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed. Now, some of your uh, translations may say compensated or get what's due for the deeds in the body, which means what's happening while you're on planet Earth, right? According to what he has done, whether good or what. So he'll get, he'll get his due, he'll get his compensation. Verse 11, so then knowing the what? Fear of the Lord. Now, I'm hoping not to lose any of us, but I think y'all are okay with kind of exploring some deeper theological things. So there's been a disagreement for years in the evangelical world about the judgment seat of Christ, right? Now, I'm not talking about the judgment seat for unbelievers, right? We'll talk about that, Lord willing, at the end in, in Revelation 20. I'm talking about if you are in Christ, you are saved, you're in Christ, you belong to him, you, have, you, are, you believe in the life, death, burial, resurrection for your salvation. That's the person I'm talking to right now, right? A Christian. That's you. Verse 10, I think maybe, many times maybe we're getting wrong. Here's what I was told about the judgment seat of Christ. And, it, and I'll be honest with you, even when I read in theology books, it was, okay, you will one day stand before God, but it'll be a mercy judgment. And th there's truth to that. And none of your sins will ever be brought up because they're forgiven as far as the east is from the west. And so um, what you've done for the Lord will be tried up by fire, burnt up, and what remains, you'll receive reward. But there is no evaluation to that time. It's simply a everything's under the blood, everything's under grace, and that's it. And I kind of thought, man, praise Jesus, right? Because I have not been the best dude since I've come to Christ at times. So, man, I'm really, really happy with that. Even so much that um, there's a theology book that many of us have read by a guy named Wayne Grudem who really 
is a great theologian, although um, there's some things I disagree with him about. What's interesting, years ago, I read something in his theology book that was different from the same section in his theology book from years before. It's very interesting. Here's what he said. Um, by the way, I, I wrote. By the way, I, I wrote him an email, right, to ask him about this, right. So um, it was really interesting. So I'll read for you the email, right. It says, "Hello, Wayne Grudem. I am a pastor in Collierville, Tennessee, who has recently had a discussion with some of my sheep about the subject matter of what the Bema Mercy Seat Judgment of Christ will be like for Christians. And the conversation I expressed that at the Bema." The seat, the mercy seat judgment of Christ for Christians, there's scriptural evidence that supports secret words, deeds, and sins of believers being revealed. Instantly, many of my sheep were disturbed by what I said and wanted to know if anybody out in the theological world believed the same way. In my church, we've used your systematic theology book, so there's a tremendous amount of respect for your theological positions. Therefore, I referred them to the section on page uh, 1,144 that supported what I was telling them. The section says this. This is Wayne Grudem in his theology, speaking about this final judgment, right? By the way, if you're taking points, the point two is a holy fear of the judgment seat of Christ. A holy fear of the judgment seat of Christ. A holy fear of the judgment seat of Christ will help us to be ambitious to please him. Now let me walk and tell you what he said. Wayne Grubin said this, Will all secret words and deeds of believers and all their sins also be revealed on the last day? Question mark. He says this, It seems that this is so. Because in writing to believers about the day of judgment, he says that when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then every man will receive his commendation from God. Certainly, this fact should provide a motive for godly living. And Paul uses it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10, through 10, which we're reading right now. We make out our aim to please him, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then he says this, But it should not cause terror or alarm on the part of believers, because even sins that are made public in that day will be made public as sins that have been forgiven. Thereby, they will be it will be the occasion for giving glory to God for the richness of his grace. So that's what he wrote in his section, right? By the way, the very end of that paragraph, I don't even know if I agree with that anymore because the verse 10 talks about a, a fear of the Lord, right? By the way, the more you fear God, the more you love God. I'm just going to say that again. The more you fear God, the more you love God, right? And I, I'm talking about a he is holy and I deserve the holy wrath of God, but in Jesus the wrath can be taken away. There's a holy fear in this. But nonetheless, so I had one person in our church challenge me on that and go, that's not what Wayne Grudem's systematic theology says. And I'm kind of like, no. I sent them an email and said, nope, here's what it says. And then this person in our, our church um, says this. They give me their copy of what Wayne Grudem says. And here's what Wayne Grudem says in their copy. Will all the secret words and deeds of believers and all their sins also be revealed on the last day? Same question, different, different version of this theology book. We might at first think so, because Paul says that when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then every man will receive his, con, his commendation from God. However, this is a context that talks about commendation or praise that comes from God, so it may not refer to sins. Now, I write him an email going, what gives? (laughs) Why are you saying that even for Christians, there's going to be a revealing of the secrets of the heart and revealing of the motivations, but over here you say it's not. What happened? So I send him an email. Would y'all like to to hear the email? It is riveting and mind-blowing. Prepare yourself. Can I get a drum roll for this at all? Can we get a drum roll? Okay. All right. All right. Here's what it is. Here's what it is. The response I got is, my name is Josh McCoy. <laughs> I'm Dr. Grudem's ministry assistant here at the seminary. I'm responding to your email to Dr. Grudem, and here is his response below about the changes he made in his theology book. Wayne Grudem says, 
I was persuaded by my students in my class at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School that I had not given sufficient attention to the verses that talked about God forgetting our sins and so forth, which are now given in the revised printing. It's like, well, that was a little underwhelming. (laughs) I want a little bit more, Wayne. But let me point you to what the scriptures say about this so that you have an understanding. I would say this. Before the judgment seat of Christ, the mercy beam a judgment seat of Christ, which was the odd thing is, Paul knows a little bit about this. If you read Acts 18 when he was planting Corinth, he actually had to go before the, the judgment seat of a local magistrate because the whole, because Corinth was being turned up with people getting baptized and saved, right? They didn't like it. In the end, the the magistrate basically dismissed the case because he realized that this had nothing to do with the civil, the, the civil jurisdiction of Achaia, which is the region that Corinth is in. So, but, but Paul knows something about that. So I, it's kind of, I don't find it odd when he writes to the Corinthians, he, by experience, understands he was actually at one of the judgment seats of even the civil magistrate in Corinth. Now, regardless of that, I want you to look back down um, I want you to hold your place there, and I want to show you a couple other scriptures. Look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So the question I, I want to just make sure and expose you to is this idea of at the judgment seat of Christ for Christians, will it be like one version of Wayne Grudem's that said basically nothing's going to be brought up that's negative, you know? It's all kind of under the blood, although I'm paraphrasing now. That's not his words. Do y'all catch my drift, what I'm talking about? Do y'all catch this? Are y'all with me? Yay or nay? Yay? Okay, good. Or at the judgment seat of Christ, will our motivations, our secret sins be brought up? Well, let's look at what the text says. You go to 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. It says this, Let a man consider us in this manner, there's Paul writing, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is Paul writing. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found what? So you think we're dealing with a pagan or someone in Christ? Right? This is a Christian. All right? This is Paul. He says this, But to me it is a very small thing that I may examine by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. So he says, you can examine me all you want. I'm, I don't have a guilty conscience, but really, man's human judgment can't compare to the judgment of the throne of God. And then he says this. But the one who examines me, examines me, is the Lord. Wait a minute. Seems like there's going to be some evaluation at the mercy seat judgment. Some kind of evaluation. Now, catch me. Not condemnation. All right? Everybody say, not condemnation. Not condemnation. That's what unbelievers get in Revelation 20. It's condemnation, right? You get the lake of fire if you're not in Christ. So we're not talking about condemnation. We're talking about evaluation. So he says this. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment for the time, saying to the Corinthians, you're trying to second guess all the motives and the things I do in secret. You can leave that to the Lord. By the way, if someone's ever done you wrong in life and you think, Man, the Lord hadn't got him. I haven't seen anything where I can just put my hands around. Have faith. Right? That's a faith walk, friend. And the more you walk in faith, you can focus more on being ambitious to please God. Now, look what happens. Therefore, in verse 5, do not go in passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the things. What? What does it say? Hidden in darkness and make manifest the what? The motives of the life. Ooh. There's a lot of things I do outwardly that no one can see my motivation for doing it, but the Lord does. I don't know about you, but that's pretty sobering. That's this idea of, you know, when I pulled next to John or I pulled next to Quinn and, you know, started talking to them and trying to go around and get some honor, they may not even perceived it, but the Lord can see it. But even more striking is... When I went over here to David and act like I was just wanting to, you know, like care about him, honor him. If really I was just doing it just to really in the end manipulate him to get what I want. Because y'all understand that happens, right? The Lord saw that the whole time. Isn't that crazy? It was crazy is 
You can't delete the browser history from God. You can't do it. He knows it. In fact, even more scary is, you may not make the click that you would be embarrassed of the browser history, but just the meditations of your heart of thinking to want to make the click, God already knew it. Now, isn't that striking? So he says, in light of that, in light of that, God knows even the motivations of my heart, in light of that, I am ambitious to please him. And I want to make sure my honoring is actually out of a position of that compound word that we have for ambition of love, motivated by. I love it. Look in verse 5, he says this, then each one's praise will come to him from God. If you want to do more reading of this, you can even look up in verse of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians and look at verse 10. You can even go through 10 through 15 where it talks more about the judgment seat of Christ. Our, our time doesn't exactly permit us to do it. Actually, wait a minute. Maybe it does. All right, go to verse 10. I'm looking at the clock. Yeah, why not? Okay, verse 10. According to the grace of God which has given me like a wise... Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. I laid the foundation, another built on it. Each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Right? There's no other foundation. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will indicate it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work, if any man's work which he has built in it remains, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through, what does it say? So it's, that's talking still about, that's the judgment seat of Christ, saying all the works we do for the Lord, particularly even, even the motivations, be burned up. Wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up like a, like a burnt offering would be burnt up, right? Completely consumed. And what stands you would receive reward. But I just want to point this out. What he's getting across is, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a holy fear of the judgment seat of Christ where the secret motivations will be evaluated, right? Our sins will be evaluated. Not condemned, but evaluated. Now listen, in the end, we'll know that we're not condemned because of the blood of Christ. In the end, we'll be able to praise him but I think as Christians, we got to free ourselves of this idea that there's no, there's no healthy, holy fear of the judgment seat of Christ. There is. Now, the end result will be praise and honor because every bad motivation, every evaluation, we're going to have an understanding that I deserve condemnation for that, but I didn't get it in Christ. Now, here's the idea. If we really believe that, that creates an ambition to please God in our life. Like, for instance, I have to ask myself all the time, am I even pastoring because I get a paycheck? Or am I doing it out of a sense of love and devotion to the Lord? You may never know that. I may even fool myself that. But does anybody know who does? Yeah. Or the next time I decide to give the gospel to somebody, am I giving it because I want to have a cool story to tell? Or am I doing it out of a pure heart motivation? Guess what? The person I tell that gospel message to, they'll never know it. Does anybody know who will? Yeah. So then it changes everything. Now I have to go, is my ambition a love and honor, love for the Lord that results in love for others, a love and honor ambition that seeks to do everything about the pleasure of God? I'm trying to please God. Are we people that please God? Do we please God? Have we asked ourselves that question? Do we please God? As we end this, look in Revelation 20. If you're not in Christ, I just, please, I need to read this to you. Because you can't talk about God's judgment to end a message for believers and not at least make sure unbelievers understand this. Please, my friends, understand this. Hey, this whole message has been for really believers, but if you're here and Christ is not yours, You've not placed your faith in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. You've not realized that you are, you are a sinner condemned to the judgment of a holy God. And you've never placed faith and trust in the finished work of the cross. Then, friend, this is the person I'm talking to right now. And let me tell you, verse 11 through 15, 
you ought to be super scared of this. This is terrible. I'm not trying to just do this hellfire and brimstone. I'm just reading you what the scripture says. Verse 11 says this, Then I saw a great white throne. We're not talking about the mercy seat judgment here. And him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven. Actually, will y'all stand up while we read this? Because this is way too holy to just sit down. Oh, man. If you're not in Christ today, I would implore you, put your nose on this text. Put your eyes on this. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. You can't hide. He knows it all. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from those things which were written in the book according to their deeds. Here is not your deeds being evaluated in light of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Here, it's deeds evaluated in light of condemnation. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, in verse 13. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged in every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, this is what's called the white throne judgment for unbelievers. This, if you're not in Christ today, I'm not trying to scare you out of hell into heaven, but I've got to be honest with you. I am not ambitious to please God if I don't tell you the truth about this. Please, I implore you today, bow the knee. And you already know it right now because when I read this, the message of this brought a holy fear in you that you can nothing but want to call out to Christ to save you. Will you pray with me? I want to pray for you. First, if you're here and maybe I read this and you've not repented of your sin, you've not acknowledged your sin, maybe you're living in sin, maybe God's doing a work of holiness in your heart right now. Would you pray? This is a prayer I prayed years ago. This is when I came to faith. It wasn't the prayer as much that saved me. I believe what I was praying. My prayer was like this. And if you can pray it with me, if you don't know how to pray, if you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, it's like this. My prayer was something like this. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. I've broken your commandments. I'm a liar. I'm a luster. I desire what others have. I worship idols. Jesus, come into my life. I accept that you died. You took the judgment I deserve. Give me the glorious exchange, my sin for your righteousness. Thank you for coming into my life. Thank you for letting me call upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are here and there was a prayer of faith like that that came on your heart, would you please tell someone around you so we can help you with the next step? And for God's people, may, by the grace of God, we be ambitious to please Him in every way we are. By faith, and because we have a holy fear of even the mercy seat judgment that all things will be evaluated. Let us sing to the Lord, and then we'll continue the rest of our worship time together.